I do invite you now to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we will be considering verses 8 through 12. You can also find this on the insert inside of your bulletin along with a brief outline of today's message. Peter has been delivering a series of exhortations on the topic of submission and suffering. We've been in that series for four weeks prior to this one, and here he really wraps up some of his thoughts in a summary statement. Uh, This marks one of his transitions in his uh, letter, and he concludes with some important thoughts here. And if you've been with us on this series thus far, uh, you can understand why Peter has placed an emphasis on Christian character. Holiness, or as we've said in this series, Christ-likeness, is the key, the key to living faithfully during trying times, the overall theme of this series. It's only through Christ and what He has done that we have any hope of strength and the ability to endure what the devil and the world will throw at us. But Peter wants to remind us, and he makes it very clear, that God is enough. That God is enough. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this being faithful to our Lord and loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving one another biblically is a marker, is an identifying feature of being Christians. And that very thing is that key, like we said and like Peter has said. And so this morning we're going to read how we can best love those within the church. So how can we practically put this into our lives for those inside the church? And practically, how can we put this to effect for those outside of the church? So both inside and outside of the church, we're going to think about loving one another biblically, trusting God, loving one another. And we're going to, again, see this as the key to living faithfully during trying times. With that in mind, would you please follow along with me this morning as I read for us God's holy inspired word? I will begin this morning with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and I will be reading through verse 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers." But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. 
And just as that water falls from heaven unto the earth and provides nourishment for the grass of the field and the flowers, so too will his word provide the nourishment you need today, the strength you need to endure the times that are ahead. Would you please once again go with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to provide that for us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you today. We need you this hour. We need you even now. As we come before your word, we have heard it proclaimed. Through the Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we might receive it, that we would let it wash through us and that it would change our lives, our attitudes, our actions, our behaviors, our beliefs. May you align us more and more unto your word, more and more unto your truths, more and more after your image. Father, as there are dark days ahead, would you strengthen us and equip us to be ambassadors, ambassadors of truth. Father, I pray for this time. I pray for your people now. I ask that you be with them and that you do so in Christ's name. Amen. A comedy website did a skit once. It's one of my favorite skits. And it's, a, it's about this girl who runs a marathon. And many people run marathons. That's not necessarily anything unique. But what makes this girl unique is that she tells no one that she's done it. And that's the thrust of this skit. And it's a documentary. It's a documentary of this girl who's run this marathon and no one knew about it. Her own husband found out by accident and, and through it they keep trying to get this interview and they, they keep talking to people who's been around her and they're like, we had no idea. What a shock. What a surprise. Um, and they actually, uh, they, they corner her in an interview um, as she's getting into her car and, and she's quoted and they make a big deal about this. Why would I tell anyone about a race that interests no one other than myself? And the newscaster is just in shock at this statement. What a statement. And, and he's taking pictures of himself interviewing this woman. And then they cut back to the husband and he's like, I've got 15 photos of me watching her run the race. Um, but again, it concludes with this point that she ran and no one knew about it. While this is incredibly funny, especially if you know anyone who's done a marathon, um, we do know how certain activities, certain lifestyle choices, or certain career um, options can quickly become who we are. To the point that when we express ourselves, when we say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a, or I do, or I try, or I play, insert that thing. It, it almost becomes a, a part of our title, if you will. So much so for some people, it's bizarre to think about them in any other way. And it is truly bizarre to consider a woman such as this. But let me ask you something this morning. How many of us would say we're known by our Christian character? If we interviewed your family, your friends, and your neighbors, what would they say about you? Would they describe you with the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount? Would they say, you know, that person really exhibits the character of the fruit of the Spirit? Or would they, when being interviewed, respond, I had no idea? 
Peter encourages the church to be overt or explicitly stated in its display of Christian character. In fact, in our passage this morning, he he gives three areas of life or, or three ways in which we are to be especially open when it comes to who we are. And the first one is a, is a particular group of people uh, that we should be very expressive in our faith with, and that is those inside the church. We should, we must be very expressive of our faith with those inside the church. We find this in verse 8. And the second group, the, the second group of people that we should be very overt, very expressive of our faith toward is those outside of the church. We should be Christ-like to those from the world. We see this in verse 9. And then the, the third and, and final situation we find that we must be Christ-like in or toward is really God himself. When we express ourselves to our God, we should be Christ-like in our behavior and in our attitude. And that one has a consequence. Um, that one has a consequence of by doing so, you will bless those around you. And so we see in 10 to 12 that we're called to be a blessing because we have been blessed by God. And so three areas, uh, two groups of people, really you could say three groups that we are to be expressive in our faith toward the church, the world, and God himself. And so let us consider these this morning, beginning in verse 8. And you get that finally here, um, reminding us uh, that this is a conclusion, this is kind of a summary, a a wrap-up statement of everything he's been saying, um, all the way back from chapter 2 now to mid-chapter 3. And that finally also clues us in on one other thing. This letter, this section of this letter is addressed specifically to the church. Finally, all of you, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to churches in Asia Minor. So he's saying, all of you Christians, listen, act this way, be this way, carry yourselves out in this way. And what he says specifically to the church about the church is five traits. Five traits that we are to display before one another. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is who we must be when identifying to and with one another. Let's, let's think about each of these briefly. First, Peter says we are to have unity of mind with one another. Now, let's be clear about this. This does not mean unity of thought. I have many friends of the faith who I disagree with on the topics of baptism and my understanding of the millennium in the book of Revelation. That does not make them less Christian. That does not make me more Christian or anything of the sort. We are unified in who we are in Christ and disagree on important issues, but lovingly disagree most of the time. I have students, former students, who I love like my own children, who aggressively very aggressively disagree with me on the topic of Reformed theology. And yet, they are still very strong in their faith. 
And some of them display a level of faith and trust in God that I only hope to achieve one day in life. And I still count them my dear Christian brothers and sisters. When Peter is calling us to be in unity of mind to those in the church, he is very narrowly meaning when it comes to the gospel and the truths of the gospel and the application of those truths of the gospel, we must be of unity in mind. We need to share and to witness to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. So much so that what makes us Christian or Christ-like should look the same from group to group, from church to church, from people to people. It's why any time a, a student goes off to college or, or someone is looking for a new church, the first place I send them is go online, go to that church's statements of belief, go to their governing documents and read them. Find out what they believe and to what they bind themselves to. And then take that and weigh it against the scriptures. And if it agrees with the scriptures and it's of the same that you've been taught, then go in peace. They are of unity of mind with you and your beliefs and your teaching. If, however, you get there and there's something missing or something bizarre, like they deny the Trinity or uh, they don't believe in the resurrection, then run! Because that is out of accord with unity. That is out of accord with the biblical truth. Weigh it with the scriptures. Weigh it with what you've been taught. and Know that even if there's minor differences, you have a debate about baptism or you want to govern your church differently or certain things like that, circumstances, that's okay. You can work through that. But if there's core differences, there's not unity and there will not be peace and you need to be careful of that. So we start with unity. Be at unity and be united with one another. And then secondly, we need to live in sympathy with fellow Christians. And I, I read this week, and I really liked this. This, this really helped me think about sympathy. Um, sympathy is not just saying a nice word to someone when they've had a bad day. Real sympathy is truly seeking to understand someone and what they're going through and then taking steps toward helping them in that regard. It's not just an understanding it's an understanding with effort to walk with them. And boy, does that change things a little bit, doesn't it? It's an understanding that would really change how we minister to one another. And this would have been so important for the early church. Think about it. Think about how dependent Jesus was on sympathy. Jesus was homeless. Jesus didn't carry a job. Jesus was dependent upon everyone for his basic needs, food, clothing, and shelter. He needed sympathetic people in his life to say, I know you have this need, and I'm going to seek to fill it. Whereas it would have been very wrong to say, I see you with this need. May the Lord provide for you and then walk off, which is unfortunately how many people do um, sympathy nowadays. But we must, especially inside the church, especially toward one another, we must lift up one another. 
We must truly seek to understand one another and then be willing to step in and participate in one another's lives. Now, there's a key to this. Um, I, I don't want to overlook it. That means being open with each other. It, 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 you cannot hide your needs from the body and then expect those needs to be met. If your foot is hurting, it affects the totality of the body. It does not help to pretend that your foot is okay. We are all united in the body of Christ. And as we carry that out, as we act in unity and we act in sympathy, we do so in brotherly love. Thirdly, we are to exhibit brotherly love toward one another. We are a family. And not like distant cousins um, who you barely see, but I'm talking blood-related And do you think that way, dear Christian? When you see someone in this church, someone in this community, you consider them your blood sibling? Someone who really, truly needs your help, that are closest in relation to you? When you hear of a report of a missionary or a Christian organization in our community with needs, do we look at them and say, my family has need? How can I help them? Churches fall apart when we fail to see this. We must deeply care for one another and love one another in brotherly love. Fourthly, we are to do this with a tender heart. The the root word here that, um, that Peter is using literally means to be caring or compassionate. It includes thoughts and feelings. So, Caring and compassionate in our thoughts and in our feelings toward one another. I love how one commentator, he uses the example of uh, the, the Good Samaritan to make his point. He says this, In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus binds that compassion upon his disciples. He contrasts the tender care of the Samaritan with the indifference of the priest and Levite. The Samaritan has compassion, or tenderheartedness, toward the wounded man. The priest and the Levite would be considered neighbors. The Samaritan would not. No one would hold a Samaritan accountable to nurse a a wounded Jew. Yet, the Samaritan showed a love that could not be demanded, the love of mercy. He made himself a neighbor in true compassion. We are called to be compassionate toward one another inside the church. And again, I just say as a reminder, that necessitates us displaying our needs before one another. There is a vulnerability we must offer to each other inside the church. And then lastly, Peter says all of this must be wrapped up in humility. The only reason we are able to love one another in this way, the only way that we can do this, the only way that this succeeds is by recognizing that God himself has loved us like this. I titled our our sermon this morning, Be Christ-like in your conduct, because looking at any of these characteristics, we see that Jesus himself best displays them. We must sacrifice for one another because Jesus sacrificed for us. We share a special bond with one another that's found nowhere else in this world. 
And that goes well beyond our walls. That goes well beyond our denomination. That goes well beyond our Reformed tradition. That goes well beyond time itself. We talked about it in, in my Sunday school class this morning. We are united with believers of all history. This should make us humble people indeed. It should point us forward. We should humbly look toward the next generation. What are we laying the foundation for here at this church? What are we doing now that generations, if the Lord sees fit, that great-great-great-grandchildren are worshiping here, what are they going to say about us who at this foundation level, were we acting in unity? Were we acting in love? Were we acting in compassion? Were we sacrificing? Were we humbly saying, I will give it away now so that it reaps dividends over and over and over again unto eternity? That's how we should see each other in the church. Not just those today, but those to come. Not just those inside these walls, not just inside our denomination, but all our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we must treat one another. We must treat one another this way. If that's the case for how we should treat each other in the church, how then do we treat those outside of the church? Do we ignore them? Do we scorn them and, and treat them down? No, actually, none of that. In fact, we do the opposite. Um, would you look with me at our second section, uh, verse 9, to see that we're to live as a Christian to the world. So not just Christ-like to one another, but Christ-like to those in the world also. And to demonstrate this, Peter gives two admonitions, don't do this, and then one, do this. So two, don't be this, and then one, be like this. He says it in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter has stated over and over in, in this book, or in his letter, particularly in chapter 1, that suffering is to be expected as part of the normal Christian life. In fact, in some ways, suffering is what identifies us as Christians. One of our Christian traits is our ability to suffer. And really, going back to what we just said, the title of the sermon, Be Christ-like in Your Conduct, it's because Christ suffered. We're not told to suffer any less than our Savior did. We're not told to sacrifice any less than our Savior did. He sacrificed his life. He sacrificed his identity. He sacrificed his title. He sacrificed so much. And then we are told to go and do likewise. And so if we're following Christ, we do not repay evil for evil, and we do not revile when we're reviled against. Now, the world will. Make no mistake, the world will repay evil for evil. The world will revile when being reviled against. The, the world is really wrapped up in this karmaic mindset where good repays good and evil repays evil and it's our job to make sure that that happens. However, Peter is saying our conduct should not match their conduct toward us. Rather, he says we're called to bless them, treat them kindly, give them back opposite of what they deserve. And where do we get that notion biblically? Where, where's a good place to find this in our Bibles? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Sacrificing. Even unto his life. 
Jesus died for a bunch of sinners who disobeyed his commands. Jesus died for people who deserved to die and granted life to those who deserved wrath. And so when we think about this, when, when this is, challenge is laid upon us, we go to our Savior and go, well, of course. Of course. And I love what Peter does here. Peter does something really, really beautiful. He, he takes it from a you should do this and, or a you must do this and says, you have been called unto this. This is part of your identity in Christ. Part of who you are and who you're meant to be is to bless those who treat you poorly. Your identifying feature as a Christian is to be a blessing to those who don't deserve it. Now, don't miss that there's a blessing for you in that, but that shouldn't be your motivation. You should bless those who don't deserve it because you've been called to it. It's part of who you are. But there is a blessing for you. There's earthly satisfaction that you're doing good unto others. By your actions, you may be the vessel that God uses to bring them to a state of repentance and to faith. But then ultimately, if even, if even if these two don't happen, what you're doing when you choose to be a blessing to those who do not deserve it and, and aren't treating you in that way, you're transforming your own heart and your own life after the image of God. You are being made unto Christ by your walk, by your actions, by your thoughts, by your prayers. You are being holied, if you will, if I poorly use that word in that way. You are being transformed into a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be Christ-like, which is the aim of all believers. And let me just say this before we move to our third point. We've got to do this, dear Christian, because no one else is. No one else is treating those who treat others poorly kindly. No one else is loving them. So how are they going to learn to love if it's not displayed in front of them? How are they going to learn to forgive if it's not displayed to them? How are they going to learn the, the weight and the magnitude of who Christ is and what he came to do if we don't first display it in our lives? They need us. They need us. This world needs you. And so when we're told to, to be Christ-like to those in the church, we go, yeah, sure, okay, good deal. Then we're told to be Christ-like to those out in the world. It's kind of like, uh, do I have to? Yes, because it's your calling. They need you, and you will be blessed by it. But then ultimately, we talk about being Christ-like. When we talk about really, as we orient our lives, and we orient our behavior, and we orient all that we are, we ultimately want to make sure that we're being Christ-like toward God, our creator and our maker. And by doing so, we will bless others. The, in fact, the only way we can do the first two points of the sermon is by understanding and doing the third point of the sermon. It kind of works backwards in that way. So would you look with me at our third section, verses 10 through 12, as we see the need to bless others or be a blessing because you've been blessed by God. And what we've got here is um, Peter is quoting Psalm 34. This is a um, psalm of... A praise um, to the Lord from David after he's been uh, delivered um, from those pursuing him. God, in a great act of deliverance, um, helps David flee um, 
sudden death, really. And in that, um, it's, it's uh, assumed that this actually is a song in the cave that David finds himself in of praise toward God. And it's a, it's a psalm sung out of gratitude of being delivered because David knew he didn't do it. David knew in this moment, in this season, right here, um, and I encourage you to, to kind of walk your way back, go to, back to Psalm 34, and then go back to 1 Samuel where this story takes place, and read how God delivered him and how it wasn't by his own hand. It's gratitude out of something that was not done from himself. And it's in that fashion, in that vein, in that idea that Peter uses this to make his point. And he says this, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter really wraps things up here and says, Dear Christian, keep your tongue from evil and keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And really he's describing what a transformed life looks like. One who is a follower of Christ no longer seeks to speak evil. One who follows Christ seeks to do that which is good. One who follows Christ seeks peace in their life. Now, it's a work in progress. I'm not saying one who follows Christ does this perfectly, does this completely, does this fully, just yet. And we're not saying that if you fail in these ways or you trip on these ways that you're not a Christian. However, in your life as you grow, as you are sanctified, we should see these things more and more. We should see a greater degree across your life. We should see you working toward these things. Why? Once again, it really is a one-point sermon because this is how Jesus lived. This was Jesus' character. Jesus did not pay evil for evil. Jesus did not offer unkind words when they were offered unto him. Jesus sought peace. Jesus sought to do good. Jesus lived all of this out as an example before the disciples and before us and then told us to go and live and do likewise. And there's a great promise in this passage that when we do, we will be blessed. When we live this way, when we act this way, when we treat others this way, we will be blessed and we will be a blessing. But dear Christian, be very careful. There's a warning in this passage also. There's a warning do not obey, and you will not be blessed. Do not obey, and you will face the consequences. It, it would be very wrong of us to, to read this passage um, and to conclude that believers, you know, get verses, you know, 10 and, and half a 12, and then it's non-believers that says the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Remember, Peter's writing to the church. Specifically, he's writing to Christians. He's saying, Christians, be very careful the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You are still capable of evil. You still are capable of receiving God's scorn and his wrath when you choose to sin, when you choose to deny him, when you choose to, to look at these characteristics and, and you know how he asks you to live and you say, no, I'm good, I think I'm going to do this. Know that there are consequences to that. 
And this is not works righteousness. This is not saying that we've got to do these things to be pleased by God. But because of who God is and because of what he's done and because of how he's made us and because of all those things, we then are called to obey. And there are consequences for not obeying. There's consequences for not following his commands. And so Peter warns the church, dear Christians, be careful. Because ultimately, when you are told to be like Christ, you need to be like Christ before the Lord himself. Your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, your behavior, your beliefs, your practices. I do want to end on a, on a good note, um, on a high note. I know that's a weighty um, command there at the end. But Peter does say that those who do follow the Lord, you will love life and have good days. I know it can be overwhelming to come to a passage such as this and realize we all have something to work on. But please take heart. You can through the power of the Holy Spirit. God is not asking you to live a holy life on your own. No, He's asking you to live a holy life through Him. We love one another in the church as brothers and sisters through the strength that the Lord provides. Because look, I'm the oldest of three siblings. I know what brotherly siblings are like. I fully understand it. And sometimes it's only by the grace of God that I'm able to display love towards them. But by the grace of God, I do. And if I'm telling you to treat each other like brothers in this church, I recognize that that's the consequence of it. That that's what is being asked. And saying it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, dear Christian. When we seek to bless those outside of the church by the power and mercy that God offers, we do so by his strength because they are going to revile you and they are going to repay good for evil and they are going to be unkind and they are going to mistreat you and they are going to swindle you at times and you're told to take it. But you're told to take it through the strength and power that God provides. We orient our lives toward him because he first came to us. And I'll just conclude with this. If you try to do this on your own, you will be left feeling bad. <laughs> you will end up worse than you started. If you say, okay, God, I'll climb this hill, I'll climb this mountain, I'll do this by my own strength, you will fall on your face and go, woe is me. However, if you see this passage as a picture of how much we need the Lord and what a blessing it is to obey Him using His strength and the unity of the brothers, then by His grace you will love life and have good days. May we strive toward these goals together as His church, as He's called us to be. Would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, again, we need one another. We are united in who we are in Christ. You call us to love one another. You call us to love those of the world, to sacrifice for them, to give abundantly to them, to take the wickedness that is warred against us because Christ did so and more. Oh, that we would be beacons of light and hope to this lost and dying world because they need us. And we need one another. And ultimately, we need you. So I pray that you would continue to pour out your mercy upon us, unite us together, draw us closer to yourself, and transform us more and more each day into your image. We pray this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.